0: True Frequency Radio, iHeart, Tuned In, TalkStream Live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in Let Food Be Thy Medicine and Medicine Be Thy Food. Tonight's guest is Steve Bossert, and we're talking about uh, amateur radio, the Hudson Valley Digital Network, and many other interesting things related to ecology and all the crossover points between amateur radio and so many other hobbies and interests. Steve, how are you today? Doing great, CJ. Thanks for having me on your show. Fantastic. Glad to have you. Glad to to hear from you. You're always a wealth of information. Well, thank you for that.
1: So uh, would you like me to share a little bit with your audience on who am I and what have I been up to before we start talking about everything and everything ranging from technical to
0: super cool cult and related weird stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A little background would be great. Sure. So, uh, as I say, a picture is worth a thousand words. So,
1: I'll uh, do that via a screen share. alright Okay. So, uh, as uh, CJ said, my name's uh, Steve Bossert. Um, A few years ago in 2017, I uh, co-founded, I don't want to call it a new amateur radio club, because the name does not have amateur radio club in it by design. So the name of the organization is called Hudson Valley Digital Network. Um, The name itself really uh, harkens back to the underpinnings of what created amateur radio in the first place. So if we uh, jumped on our time machine to 1934, when the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, as uh, many people know it, uh, formulated uh, what, what we now know today as amateur radio in their ridiculously detailed rules uh, under Part 97.1. The, uh, the specific language that we really looked for was almost a three-pillar approach. And so these three pillars, I I felt, as well as a number of other folks that are involved, is that they kind of lost some of the, uh, the true meaning of amateur radio. And so these three pillars basically work out to information. So how do we share something that's going to be of value to the wider audience? How do we coordinate the sharing of a lot of that information? And then overall, how do we educate people around it? And so when we think about anything that's technical you know uh a lot of this really is something that um can get pretty complex fairly quickly and so if we we really think about the night the uh the part 97.1 rules you know we felt that this is a really strong way and uh most people would tend to agree if you build something on pillars like back in the greek days you know that's a pretty strong underpinning because many of those columns are still standing today and so Very deliberate and modern future focus. If uh, anyone's familiar with amateur radio, there's many, many organizations out there that love to focus on maybe, say, general information about the wide world of amateur radio. Others tend to focus on very niche areas like long distance contests or DX, as many people call it. And so we wanted to just say, you know what, there's enough clubs that kind of focus on the inch deep and mile wide um type of approach and so we wanted to just say hey look you know we're going to focus on modern and future focus of course we're not going to ignore the last 130 odd years worth of radio history but all too often it's easy to get bogged down in all of that and by the time that you level people up to what's the current now you've kind of lost their attention span and so we figure people want to see something that's neat if they want to go back and learn that's great But as we've probably seen over the last 10 or so years, the rapid changes of technology do not necessitate learning about vacuum tube theory when you're looking to connect a internet connected greenhouse. So we don't want to have people get overly complicated in that. So, so far it's worked out pretty good. Um, We are a Recognized entity by the FCC. So we have a club uh, call sign, N2HVD, and we use this call sign during special events and contests and other ways. Where, uh, as a personal call sign holder, myself, my call sign is K2GOG, or for the phonetics, Kilo2Golf Oscar Golf. Uh, the goal of using a club call sign is it allows other people to get on the air. And uh, interact with other people uh, over radio. So a great example of that is maybe a uh, satellite demonstration and having other people try operating satellite and to do so under the N2HVD call sign. So that's that. And just in summary, digital meets the physical world. Again, going back to the underpinnings. You know, how do we converge technology? You know, I think in the last year, no thanks uh, to COVID, you know, too much of our, our days these uh, at this time pretty much are dominated by doing things over the internet or, you know, enabled by some type of technology. And so how do we take the digital and bridge that into the physical world and vice versa? And so that convergence, that's going to be a term that you're probably going to hear Uh, probably a couple times. So if you're keeping track at home with a piece of paper, uh, I'd be curious to see how many times they actually use the word convergence. And if you want to shoot those uh, numbers to CJ, he could let you know if you came close. So gamifying things a little bit. So that's a little bit about HVDN. Uh, And again, the the name Hudson Valley, that's in New York. So uh, we are focused on the New York metro area, but that's not to say... Uh, if you live in some other part of the world or country um, to not check us out again I think building a great community digitally makes it interesting where if you want to come on a vacation to the area you'll kind of feel like you're at home so you know part of this is also of how do we demonstrate some really amazing things going on within the Hudson Valley and again bringing that from the the digital world into the physical so that's that and then uh my, oh, myself super quickly um been an amateur radio uh dork for actually now 23 years this is an older slide so more than half my life i've held an amateur radio uh license which is crazy now that i think of it it was an early electronic experimenter i think that hack was basically uh A relative gave me some CB walkie-talkies that were styled in the old Star Trek, you know, the original series kind of thing, and I got in major trouble with my mom by talking to a trucker on Channel 14. I had no idea (laughs) what I was doing as a kid, and when my mom smashed the walkie-talkie on the uh, patio ground, I saw all the components inside, and I'm like, that's really cool. And so uh, I've actually uh, made a career out of that, guiding... Uh, large companies around the world in terms of technology, product, strategy. Uh, Informa is the parent company, and we own huge events uh, so like Black Hat. If anyone's into the cybersecurity side, uh, Internet uh, IoT world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a, it's a cool place to be. And then I'm um, into hiking and travel. I Try to take pictures as much as I can, and actually still enjoy what I'm doing. And, uh, the photo at left is of my wife, Jennifer and I, when we were on vacation in Iceland and that's actually where I sneezed on two continents at the same time. Uh, because where we were at a, uh, a national park in Iceland, uh, actually bridges over the, uh, the, uh, two continental plates. So you could actually literally stand technically in Europe and technically in North America at the same time. And, uh yeah so i sneezed and i could say that i sneezed in two continents i certainly wouldn't try that these days with covid because i'd probably get on the sanctions list easy but uh that's a little bit about myself and uh hopefully that works as an intro i'm excited to uh share a little bit more about uh some uh some really cool topics
0: awesome well thank you for the intro introduction uh that's uh, really nice to have a guest who's so uh, so uh, prolific at presentations. Uh, oftentimes, I struggle to illustrate uh, a guest's strong points that I don't, don't always feel like I do justice. But that's an excellent introduction. So uh, I guess we'll uh, jump over and uh, jump into our, uh, our main uh, interview here. All right. So it looks like we're having a little bit of trouble with OBS Studio. That's no surprise if you've been watching my channel for a while. So we're just going to pick it up here uh, where we left off. And uh, Steve's going to uh, bring in some sh- slideshow information and uh, share some uh, information with us. So Steve, uh, take it away.
1: Great. Thanks, CJ. So, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have asked about that I've met while out in the wilderness, you know, doing various things, and, um, you know, people that I come across that are, of course, are intrigued by why do I have a radio clip to my uh, backpack strap? Uh, say, well, Who can you talk to with that? And I explained that you need an amateur radio license and there's all sorts of different equipment that we could use ranging from small handheld radios to uh, equipment that requires a much larger antenna uh, called uh, HF or high frequency radio. Um, And then the next question that usually people ask is say, well, how many amateur radio people are around in the Hudson Valley? And I've often said to myself, you know, that's a good question. And so I, I compiled some of the information available from the Federal Communications Commission or the FCC, as uh, most people know them as. Uh, since uh, an amateur radio uh, license holder is federally licensed, that means for lack of a, a better description, uh, you're sharing your address uh, with the FCC. And there's a database that you can go and find this uh, thinking that most amateur radioactivity does tend to happen from one's personal uh, home, they kind of want to know, like uh, like an FM broadcaster or even like a police station or anything, where are those transmitters uh, generally transmitting from? And so I, uh, I compiled this as part of a, a larger presentation uh, to help educate on a topic that I guess we'll come back to a little bit later called Islands on the Air, or Summits on the Air, or Parks on the Air. Um, but you know, here's a nice little macro shot of the Hudson Valley. How how I define it for those that are not familiar with the area, north of New York City. Once you get, let's say, an hour and change north by car, is what most people would consider is where the Hudson Valley core is. But the Hudson Valley really, at its at its at its uh, essence, is really from the mouth of uh, the Hudson River which is down by Manhattan and Jersey City and then it goes uh, north for 315 miles but uh, for what most people refer to as the Hudson Valley generally many residents think of that as starting between the Bear Mountain Bridge which is down by uh, the upper reaches of Westchester County and Putnam County in the uh, town of Peekskill and Then north, all the way up, headed uh, towards uh, New York's capital of Albany, south of that is a bridge called the Rip Van Winkle Bridge. The same Rip Van Winkle of uh, stories from back in the day. And so between those kind of north and south poles, and then if we go out about uh, 25, 30 miles in either direction is how we come up with that grid. And um, it's interesting, you know, on the east side of the Hudson River, There's roughly about 1,300 amateur radio uh, operators. And on the west side, which um, has about 800, a little over 800, uh, I think a lot of that difference has to do with the fact that the west side of the Hudson River has these pesky things called mountains. And most people do not want to be known as mountain trolls, and therefore (laughs) there's less places to live. But it is absolutely beautiful on the west side of the Hudson River in counties like Orange and Ulster, and then once you get a little bit further up into Greene County. So that's what most people think of as the Hudson Valley. And then on the east side, uh, you have Putnam County, which is where the, uh, the Bear Mountain Bridge is. Then you go north into Dutchess County, which is home to three bridges that span across the Hudson River, the uh, Newburgh Beacon Bridge, the Mid-Hudson Bridge, and the Rhinecliff Kingston Bridge. And then once we get outside of Dutchess County, you find yourself into Columbia County, which is home to the Rip Van Winkle Bridge. And so those are kind of the confines, but it's interesting, you know, you'd think that it's easy to, to know, you know, 2,000 people. I certainly don't know all 2,000 of them. I don't know. How about you, CJ? You know, Do you think that you've met any of these, how many
0: of these 2,000 people that are amateur radio licenses in the area? I would say I, I, meeting uh, probably maybe 50 at the max, uh, talking to them over the radio, I probably have talked to maybe 100 or maybe 150 over the years, but I'd say that's about it. Um, but that, it's always interesting when I run into someone who's an amateur radio operator not on the radio, and it's like you find out, it's like, oh, oh, you're right over there. Oh, well, you should jump on the repeater. We should ch- talk some So. It's interesting how close we can be and not realize it without uh, without running into each other. Yeah, I I think I've maybe only
1: met in person or talked, you know, to maybe maybe a few more than you, but not by much. But it, it certainly shows that not only is there room for making some further contact with some of these folks, but You know, even if I just look at at Dutchess County, um, you know, we only have roughly the same population as the entire country of Iceland, which is only like 300,000 people. And so if we just think about Dutchess County, or if we go uh, to Ulster County, which I think is about 180,000 people, you know, we're talking about a a percentage of a percentage. And, um, you know, that means that there's a lot of room for growth, especially as people become more aware of... um, Life-critical communications, if maybe there's a bad snowstorm, they might want to uh, get involved in amateur radio as just a backup form of communications is kind of one popular thing. Others like it just as an additional hobby that can maybe add some, some joy to their lives. Maybe some of them are interested in uh, playing around with uh, Raspberry Pi and Internet of Thing type of electronic maker type of devices. Uh, amateur radio offers a lot of benefit where you can experiment in frequencies going to as low as 137 kilohertz, so that's far below the AM broadcast band, and then you can go all the way up to like 300 gigahertz, where not a lot happens, but as far as I've ever transmitted is at 10 gigahertz, which is is pretty fun, and there's lots of uh, interesting things in between there. So it is a hobby that offers a lot to people, but without making it sound technical, I think just coming back to the whole greening of the Hudson Valley, there's so many fantastic activities that we can all be involved in. That, you know, if we're riding bikes or kayaking or anything, you know, to just have like a simple uh, handheld radio, if uh, you want to talk with your, your friends on the shore, make sure that they're going to pick you up when, you're, uh, when your kayak uh, comes close to shore. Or if you're trying to get in touch with a biker, um, you know, sometimes you don't have robust cellular communications in the area, and so it's it's an immediate value add, and um, you know, I'm just trying to find some additional ways to make that exciting, and I guess that's what's going to get me into these uh, annoying acronyms known as uh, IOTA, or Islands on the Air, uh, there's SODA, which is summits on the air, which uh, we have way too many mountains to talk about in any one given time, and then we also have parks on the air, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, uh, let's see, what were those? Oh, here we go. So, um, we have cat, you know, a thing called Castles on the Air. So, you can uh, go and play radio at any of these uh, locations. And it's a cool way to not only enjoy your hobby outside of the, uh, the basement or ham shack, as some people refer to it, um, but it also helps you engage with the uh, local community. And I can tell you, anytime that I've done any of these doing radio somewhere um, activities, uh, people are usually naturally curious. Uh, I've only done it once but there's even (laughs) if you see on the right hand side there's even a thing called Walmart parking lots on the air (laughs) has its own little interesting uh, contest culture where where every uh, Walmart has like a a unique identifier for corporate needs and so uh, I participated a few years ago. Uh, amateur radio also has the ability to access satellite communications and so those of us that donate to that um, you know we put satellites into orbit and bounce uh, signals back off of them and so um, one year there was a contest of combining talking over satellite and Walmart parking lots and it was pretty fun to hear people identify themselves as like store 2532 and then you know you'd write it down and then you'd immediately be curious as to where they were. And it was uh, a pretty fun thing. Uh, I don't know exactly what uh, awareness that raised, aside from the fact that Walmart's absolutely gigantic in where they operate. But, you know, there's all sorts of other fun things. And, you know, when we think at, like, the higher level with, with some of these, like, parks on the air, which is, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, Backed by the National Park Service in the United States, and there's variants in other parts of the world as well. You know, you get into some of these other things, like out west, you have Route 66, which is pretty famous. I'm sure there's lots of songs about it. Then you have other things that are just a little bit more obscure, like mills on the air. Like, how many mills are there? I don't know. Or mines on the air. You know, there's probably a lot of people in Pennsylvania that are into that. You know, but, you know, suffice to say, you know, this I think paints a really cool picture that. There's a lot going on within amateur radio that you could, you know, go back to that convergence uh, aspect and uh, and find some things uh, to do. Uh, we actually have right here locally in the Hudson Valley something that combines a number of these on the air type of activities uh, that we're going to be doing a special event for uh, in the warmer months uh, this coming year um, that is involving a uh, pretty interesting island that i have some photos i could share last i was uh on that uh, a few years back uh technically it would include if it had the right um endorsements it would include uh castles on the air islands on the air u.s island award program and technically parks on the air so There's kind of a lot going on on this really cool spot. And, you know, technically, there's probably some other things that we can dream up too. But suffice to say, you know, there's, uh, you know, this I think is an easy way to show that Amateur Radio is not just, uh, you know, an at home activity. You know, there's, it's not just me coming up with this idea. You know, somebody spent the time to put these websites together in contests and, you know, you send out cards and you get awards for, you know, being able to contact. Um, you know, as many islands as possible, or castles, or parks, or anything like that, it's, it's quite cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, it's one thing that I've noticed about this hobby, is that it is so diverse, like, you know, I I think people kind of know, from my channel, I'm interested in so many things, you know, and it's this one hobby I, I have been in since I was 14, on and off, and, I haven't even begun to touch the tip of the iceberg on the diversity in this hobby of, of places you can go and explore and never get bored learning or playing with new stuff. Um, but maybe for the people who aren't familiar with contests, could you could just give a, a quick explanation of what an amateur radio contest is or how that works? Sure. So let me drag this over here. Uh, let's see.
1: I love slides. I do slides and stuff for a living so sorry to bring that here so yeah contests are kind of interesting you know there's quite a lot with an amateur radio and you know as a hobby i think this is what most people want the image of the hobby to kind of be known for and so you know there's quite a a scattering of uh of of good pictures here you know to the left you have a, a workshop that was taking place at something called a ham fest which is where uh, people in the community go and meet, and they were uh, teaching some uh, some young girls how to uh, solder some like blinking lights onto a, a, a badge so that they get attached to their backpacks. Um, and then you have uh, to the right uh, the Amateur Radio Relay League, which is the national uh, organization for the betterment of uh, amateur radio and its uh, enthusiasts. Uh, we have Gyram uh, uh, and and to RJ, uh, who was giving a presentation at a uh, an HVDN meeting uh, before COVID uh, hit back in 2019. And then there are some other folks that you could see. Uh, Diana, who is uh, using a homemade satellite antenna. Uh, she was actually participating in a, uh, a sort of contest, which I'll come back to in a second. And then you got some uh, folks down there on a trail in the, uh, the Northwest U.S. Um, participating in a different type of contest um, while they're out, uh, hence uh, the trees. And then you got some youngsters on bikes and uh, in a workshop. And then lastly, we come back to uh, a nice lady that I've had the chance to chat with on the air called, uh, named Risa. Um, and uh, she's actually very involved in contesting. And basically, you know, what a contest is, is a defined period of time and some type of a goal, where you aspire to talk to other people that are participating in that contest, and you can use all sorts of different frequencies, a lot of contesting that most people associate with amateur radio tends to come in the form of HF for between uh, 1.8 to 30 megahertz or so, and so you can pretty much talk around the world at different times of the day using those frequencies. And that's a pretty popular thing. Um, I I think it gamifies a lot of the hobby. Um, But there's also a lot of other contests, um, you know, that involve other technologies, uh, like getting outside, uh, talking via a a bicycle portable, or while you're mountaining, or uh, even using a a satellite antenna. Uh, So you have that. But, you know, generally, most people are kind of doing this uh, amateur radio uh, contesting stuff from their house, and you could kind of get a feel by uh, this uh, photo collage of uh, most of the uh, actual humans (laughs) playing uh, amateur radio. Uh, I think almost everyone here was involved in some type of a contest, uh, except for Herman Munster and his dad. Uh, I'm sure they were not doing a contest. But, um, you know, the picture to its uh, right is a a local Hudson Valley resident. uh, He prefers the name Doc. And he was... um, participating in a contest called uh, Winter Field Day, uh, which comes up in January, the last full weekend of January every year. And the goal of that, much like a, uh, a similar contest that happens in June called uh, just Field Day, not Winter Field Day, just regular Field Day, the goal of that is to take your radio equipment, find a place to operate portably, make contact with other people and you log the contacts these days over a computer where everyone has like a special identifier so in our area of the Hudson Valley or I should say our area of New York is known as uh, ENY or Eastern New York and then to our south we have the uh, New York City and Long Island area then there's WNY which is Western New York and so the rest of the country has these little acronyms. And so a typical exchange when you're speaking with somebody during a contest uh, is very, very brief because everyone's trying to talk to everybody and it can become a madhouse. So it's very typical to only share your call sign, your location. So in the case of like uh, Winter Field Day, you would share your your identifier. So, uh, for example, during Winter Field Day with the Overlook Mountain Amateur Radio Club, Uh, that Doc, myself, and uh, CJ uh, are also members of, he would share the the call sign, uh, which was uh, November 2, Lima, Lima, or N2LL, uh, followed by how many transmitters or stations that we set up for Winter Field Day. So that year, uh, I think we were operating as a class called 3-Alpha, or 3-A, which means that we had, at any point in time, three different transmitters on the air, and the letter A means that we were at a temporary uh, location versus at, at home, which it would have been otherwise known as H or hotel. And so um, you, you'd share share that information, your, your call, the, the call sign, the location, and uh, your status, and you'd confirm that back and forth with the other person. you'd uh, make a complete contact, you'd log it in the, uh, in the software, and then ultimately, you'd uh, share those results in like an Excel type of uh, format with the contest organizers and then they compile all the scores and, you know, let everyone know, you know, who had the most points or the most contacts or, you know, who made the most uh, conversations on a particular frequency band. And so if you're like a data junkie, you know, you can get lost in all the different data metrics, you know. So that's kind of a, a a typical contest. Many of them really don't span... Uh, you know, anything more different than that, but, you know, here you have mostly people excluding, uh, you know, and you know, maybe one other, but for the most part, uh, it would be a pain to disassemble or compile the range of equipment that people have in a home environment to bring it out portably. And so now that's one of the things that I seek to change uh, with HVDN is to raise more awareness of not only blending amateur radio in to other hobbies but also it's great when you could be part of like these contests myself personally i'm not very big into contests and getting awards i like it just more for the activity um and giving other people some uh some contacts um, i don't try to get like the maximum number of points or anything like that but you know it's a it's it's a fun conversation starter and You know, in past uh, years or months when I've been out on a trail during a contest, it's always a great way to demonstrate amateur radio because you know that there's going to be a ton of people all trying to vie to make contact with you. And so that's been actually pretty fun, um, you know, to demonstrate when you know that there's people there. Because otherwise it would be really hard to get some positive uh, reaction, (laughs) you know, if you try talking into a radio and there's nobody to speak to. So trying to uh, do those kind of outside activities is always great during a, uh, a contest.
0: options and uh yeah like your point about how hard it is to like you know to take your full base station with you like that picture in the upper right there like that is such a nice station but man you know try packing all that into a truck and taking it somewhere remote right
1: <laughs> definitely and so to give you an idea like uh what a let's see sorry if i'm yeah so like here's like a good example of uh i'll 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 let you in in a little secret this photo is not of the hudson valley i really tried hard to find somebody that had a a portable hf radio uh this lady i think is actually a paid spokesperson for one of the uh the vendors named icom who makes radio equipment and uh this is a new radio that they just released called the icom 705 which is a, a pretty neat uh radio that has like a full color display and bluetooth and wi-fi and gps and like a whole bunch of stuff and so um both this company as well as a few others over the last i'd want to say probably the last 50 years but you know probably really within the last 25 you know there's been many more products that are commercially made where in the past if you wanted to go and play radio in the wilderness somewhere it was usually through something that you had to construct to your own uh like cj said you know equipment's large and you know, if anything, I think there's probably even more capable in a, in a radio today that somebody can take portably than somebody with a whole basin full of equipment, you know, 30 years ago. And so uh, I think she's actually somewhere in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, this picture is a real picture right here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, back in October, before it started to get really cold, I um, operated as part of a uh, a contest when i was uh camping just north of the bear mountain bridge uh down in the town of garrison uh which is uh, right across from west point military academy so it's as historic of a, an area as possible and so you know here's a picture of a radio uh that i had um set up where i was talking with people on some of these higher frequency uh, uh bands known as 20 meters and 40 meters and then uh that was around, like, 9 o'clock at night, I think I took that picture. And then after I uh, got my fill of uh, talking with a couple people down in the Caribbean, I uh, switched over to a, a local VHF frequency and had a little chat with a guy who was a few towns uh, to my south. And uh, that was a fun little conversation. So just to kind of show, you know, you, could, you can get out there. And, uh, and play radio in, in different ways, and then here's somebody um, who I've, um, I've had the opportunity to, to meet a few times. Um, this is a, another outdoor activity called Summits on the Air, and to the left you can see all these little triangles and uh, numbers. Those represent the different peaks, so for example, like Overlook Mountain um, has its identifier of, uh, I think it's GC080. I'd have to go back and check. But, you know, there's all these crazy websites, as you saw on that earlier list, where, you know, people keep track of this. And um, uh, this gentleman, not the lady pictured, that's his uh, hiking partner. Um, this guy, his call sign is uh, AC1Z. If you uh, go to the uh, website at the bottom called sodamaps.org and you look in the Hudson Valley, uh, this person, uh, AC1Z, he is super, super active in doing all the soda stuff. And so it's uh, it's been fun to, uh, to meet in person as well as to uh, chat on the air. And that photo was taken at High Point, New Jersey, which is not part of the Hudson Valley. But it's a cool spot if anyone's looking to travel. It's uh, kind of in the vicinity of North Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania. When you're at this monument, you could... You could see across three states and in years past it was actually pretty popular for people that would participate in vhf and uhf contests um, which really require line of sight compared to um, big antennas on hf uh, people would go there with their car and set up a bunch of temporary uh, beam antennas you know that look like uh, ladders uh, you know turned on their side um, but it became so popular. The, uh, the park rangers, you know, started to ban people from doing that because it became too popular. And so they uh, they definitely keep an eye on the contest calendar. And if they see anyone with funky antennas, you know, they, they don't let them into the park during that weekend, which is a shame because it was a, it was a great sight. but occasionally I've, I've snuck up there and a lot of other people do too. And, uh, just play radio from the parking lot up at the summit, you know, for a little while. And it's, uh, It's pretty fun, you know, when you're up high on a mountain, um, and uh, you see where, how far you can talk, even with just a simple, uh, simple handheld radio, you know, like this. Um, When you talk with somebody, one of the questions that most people tend to ask is, "Well, what type of radio are you using, and where are you?" And when you tell somebody that you're at 3,500 foot on a particular mountain or let's say 2800 foot in on uh, on Berlin Mountain or uh, slide mountain in Ulster County and you tell somebody that you're using a handheld radio with less than five watts of transmit power and you're maybe talking with somebody you know a hundred miles away they usually get pretty excited at that it's, it's kind of a rare thing and so it happens a lot more frequently than Many might think, but again, it's like a whole separate side of the uh, amateur radio hobby that I think kind of goes under recognized or even if we look at, you know, something like this islands on the air. Uh, certainly, uh, <laughs> the New York area does not have a tropical looking climate like these uh, fellows, but, you know, if uh, you need to try to convince your uh, husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or significant other or just friends to say, hey, we want to go and find a reason to justify visiting some cool um, location. Um, you know, there's lots of people that organize these uh, expeditions or DX expeditions as some people call them and uh, go and visit these like rare islands all around the world and um, advertise the fact that they're going to be there playing radio and um, when they make mention that they're going to be confirming contact with everybody and send out a a commemorative card called a QSL card. uh, It's like you become like the VIP. It's like everyone wants to be your friend for those like 18 seconds and make sure that they establish contact um, with you. And so this whole islands on the air thing, uh, you know, sort of becomes a little bit more closer to home uh, because in the Hudson Valley, or I should say on the Hudson river, technically there's six islands. Um, that are official um, in the Hudson River and of those six um, not that many of them actually qualify as part of this Islands on the Air or U.S. Islands Award Program or even uh, Parks on the Air and so you know one of the things that I would like to change in the coming year through one great example which I have some some really cool pictures of is a uh, pretty historic island called uh, Polypel uh, most people locally refer to it as Bannerman Island. Um, but that's going to be a really cool event that I think not only is going to raise a lot of awareness for people that are interested in all this dorky ham radio stuff, but it's like the amount of history involved with Bannerman this cool thing. They're always trying to find ways to raise funds to, uh, maintain the property. And you'll see what I mean, you know, later on in the show. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it really blends together a lot of things. And so, uh, you know, everyone always wants to try to find things that are like that feel-good moment. And, you know, if it's, you know, d- participating in, say, like a Wounded Warrior Project or, you know, Walk for Cancer or any of the other, you know, great type of, um, you know, charity works, you know, there's also a lot of these nonprofits that, you know, really depend on, um, you know volunteer dollars and time to do different projects and so i think this is like a great way to show not only what amateur radio is not in not in a house but how could it actually get out there and help you know a nonprofit as an example in the case with uh, the Bannerman uh, trust or maybe how that's going to work out well we can do similar things and uh and actually um through the overlook mountain amateur radio club um, we do the winter field day and now the summer field day at a really great location up in Rhinebeck called uh, Ferncliff Forest. And um, as a thanks for allowing us to uh, play radio there, um, you know, we asked the, um, the people who run it uh, if we could uh, pitch in and do any kind of uh, restoration projects. And so, uh, towards the outset of COVID, we did a very compliantly socially distance uh, uh, restoration project where we uh, repainted the uh, the trail kiosk and built some new uh, rails to prevent people from falling into some pits that are left over from 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 some hundred uh, year old uh, building foundations and, and a couple other projects that we did. So it's it's good to kind of give back, but. You know, I think this is just a solid win-win for everybody. You know, it raises awareness of some modern aspects of amateur radio. We can help the local community. You know, I think it's like a, a really good combination of things.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that Ferncliff Forest site is uh, is an awesome one. You know, we've done Winter field Day there a couple of times, and it's just a really cool site. It's like, it's not something you'd expect to find nestled so close to Rhinebeck, and yet uh, it has such a remote feeling to it. it uh it's, it's just nice to, uh, to be able to, like, just jump outside of that town and boom, you're there. And, uh, and it's really set up with, uh, topography-wise, it's just a great spot to do field days. So, yeah, that was excellent. It's, and it's nice to see how, uh, how much the community tie-in happens here. I know with our, uh, our Omar Daily Net that we've been doing since this whole COVID thing happened, uh, it's been really interesting to see how many new amateurs have come on the air and how many people who uh, like moved up from New York City to get away from uh, you know the congestion, ongoing issues down there, have joined the community? And and their response has been uh, really positive. They're like, I've I've heard a lot of people like you know just very impressed with the amateur radio community and and, uh, and how people are able to connect and relate to each other. Yeah,
1: definitely. And you know, it's it's funny too because. Um uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I grew up on Long Island, and so it's like a totally different world. And so where I, where I grew up, uh, we have these things called amateur radio repeaters. And uh, Long Island is fairly flat at its widest point. We're only talking 30 miles wide by 120-odd miles long. And so the landmass of Long Island has two of the five boroughs of New York City, known as Queens and Brooklyn, most people will argue this till they're blue in the face about who lives on Long Island, and then it comes down to, are you in Brooklyn or Queens? Because then you say you're in New York City, but most people consider the island of Manhattan as New York City, and the other four boroughs are just like, well, whatever, you're not really in the city. You're in Staten Island, or the Bronx, or Queens, or, or Brooklyn, um, but Long Island, between NASA and Suffolk County, you know, it's still you know 4 million plus people. And so between those two counties, if I tried to figure out how many counties add up to 4 million people, I'd have to probably go Westchester, which is a little hair over a million, Dutchess, Putnam, Ulster, Sullivan, Green, Rockland, and then I probably need to get like further north and I'm still going to fall short. So, you know, it's a lot of land area that we have um, in the Hudson Valley compared to elsewhere, but... Going back to the whole thing with repeaters, when you use a handheld radio or even a mobile radio to extend your communications range, you basically bounce your signals off of these uh, these repeaters that are usually installed on top of buildings or towers or you know, high vantage points. And so local where I live, there was a repeater on a frequency of 146.805. And uh, that particular repeater I had saved in the memory banks of my radio because it was one of the the, the local repeaters that I had. And so when I moved up here to the Hudson Valley, I guess in 2013, uh, one night I was scanning around with the radio uh, now that I finally got it unpacked. And uh, I was like, whoa, how am I hearing that repeater? And so I started to listen a little bit, and it was late at night. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night. And I think it was probably CJ talking with a few other people. And you know, I, I hopped on, and you know, Beacon, compared to where that repeater is on Overlook Mountain, just north of uh, Woodstock, one, it was like, wow, you're in Beacon, and you're making it into the repeater. And then two, when I explained the whole story, it was, you know, it was like what attracted me to this this amateur radio club, the Overlook Mountain Amateur Radio Club, and the, the great group of folks there. And, you know, I like sharing that story because many, many other people have found it the same way. If they're a new ham, they get their shiny new radio from Amazon or wherever they buy it, and they look for some frequencies or they figure out how to put it in scan mode, and chances are they come across this 146805 repeater, and they listen for a little while, and then eventually when they're brave enough, they go and speak, and you know, it's a good, it's a good welcoming type of uh, repeater. And so it's actually been fun. You know, uh, I found, you know, cause a lot of the frequencies can only cover certain geographic areas. And so I've actually found it fun when I travel uh, for work, if I bring a radio with me, or when I used to uh, drive to uh, Boston from, uh, from home for business related things. I'd have the car, and I'd go and always make it a point, no matter where I am, to scan the same frequencies that I use at home and see where they overlap. So like another example in Beacon is the um, the uh, 146.970 megahertz repeater. Um, when I get closer to Boston area, there's a repeater that shares that same frequency. And so we go from hearing people locally in New York talking about things that they are finding interesting. And then when I get closer to Boston and I hear, uh, uh, you know, a, a very different accent as uh, Boston people tend to have with their wicked good sense of humor, you know, it's kind of like a fun thing. And so, you know, any t- anytime I've traveled, you know, I do that. And it's always a great conversation starter. You could say, oh, I had this program in my radio from wherever I live. And, you know, it's cool that you guys are using uh, the same frequency. And I've, you know, done that, you know, San Jose, California, Amsterdam in the Netherlands—you know, almost everywhere that I've been. You know, this some frequency that I saved. You know, somebody's using it for totally different purposes. And so, like the picture that we have on the screen, um, this—not uh, to uh, pat myself on the back in any way, just because it's a nice woodsy picture. This was uh, an event going back to what C.J. was saying uh, about Ferncliff Forest. Um, this was actually just at the beginning of December. Um, you could probably see the, the the mask around my neck and then uh, Lloyd, uh, K2JVX, sitting up there on the log. Um, we were doing an event called radio direction finding or a fox hunt, as some people call it. And that basically means you take a transmitter, you hide it somewhere in the woods, and then you use different types of specialty antennas to go and try to find it. And so this is a different type of contest where you're not just looking for people to talk to, you're actually looking for the transmitter. So let's see. So like, here's an example of... Hide and seek. Yeah, exactly. So like, here's an example of Lloyd with a specialty uh, antenna. Um, This actually serves a lot of purposes. You know, if anyone's interested in livestock or, um, you know, trying to find, you know, some endangered uh, species that have uh, radio tracking tags on them, You know, this is a way that you can kind of prepare for other type of events using amateur radio. So he's using a little loop antenna. Here I am with a a kind of a overly complicated thing called a time difference of arrival antenna that uh, senses how fast signals are received at either antenna at the ends of that piece of PVC. And when they're considered in phase, you do not hear a tone and if you rotate the, that antenna, you'll hear like a tone in your radio speaker. And so that's a really cool antenna, but uh, we um, had all sorts of different things there. Here's um, Rob, uh, uh, who was using a commercially made antenna called Arrow, uh, which uh, a lot of people actually use for satellite communications, but we, um, as, a, as a group, we uh, built antennas out of some surplus components uh, that most people would have at home. So if you're looking for like a under $20, make something with what you have in your garage, uh, you can take a uh, an old tape measure, some PVC conduit, and uh, you know attach them all together with the instructions that come up with an antenna, um, like pictured here, or let's see, probably got another one. There we go. So this was uh, somebody else's attempt on it. Uh, you could tell that that tape measure has definitely seen some action in its day. Um, so it was it was it was a fun day. You know, we had a, a pretty good turnout. This was the only picture that exists of us not having masks. Um, so that's why we're all spread out. Um, but it was it was a fun day. And you know, um the nice thing also with Ferncliff Forest, I feel like this is like such a bleeding plug because we took that picture deliberately underneath the sign so people can go and check out the website. Um you know it's it's a cool spot, and you know now that we've been doing these field day things for the last couple of years, there, this place is always full of people. Even in the dead of winter, you know there's people walking their dogs or they're snowshoeing or stuff like that. In the warmer months, they're out there with their kids, you know, showing them tadpoles and uh, sunfish in the uh, in the pond. So you know, people are kind of familiar. At some point during the year, they're going to see us take over part of the the, the compound there. But uh, this was the first time that we did something where um, members got outside in the um, in the preserve to go and find this transmitter, and so it was kind of neat hearing the stories of everybody as they walked around, bumping into people, and then asking, um, "What are you doing, waving these antennas around?" You know, it was it was pretty fun. Like my my favorite story was uh, we were walking back from the third time that we hid the transmitter, and there was a, a family. It must have been like a mom and dad, you know, maybe like a, a like a, a brother or a sister, and like you know their collective kids. So it was like six or seven of them, and there was like a little three-year-old kid just being typical annoying three-year-old, you know, dragging him by the arms and just being a just total pain. And uh, you know, he stopped being annoying. Like we saw him up the trail just being a pest, and he, as we got closer with all of our weird antennas his eyes lit up he wanted to ask questions or you know mommy and daddy needed to ask questions to translate for him from you know three year old language and you know i think the way that the parents explained it was we were hunting aliens in the forest <laughs> and this you should have seen the look on this kid's face it was like the most coolest look i've seen of imaginative uh, imaginative things and it it got us all thinking as a group this was the first time that we did something like this Um, but you know, because we kind of organized it somewhat fast, you know, one thing that would have been super helpful if we even had like a little postcard or something with here's some stuff and here's where we can share more information. It would have been good to have had that. So we'll, we'll do that next time. But you know, for these other things that we do, like winter field day, we have information tables set up. So when people come by and they say, this is weird, I'm kind of interested now you're gonna data dump a bunch of stuff on us. Now I'm gonna be expected to remember this stuff that you're sharing. It would be nice to just have a little, you know, postcard or something. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I like to try to do um, with the uh, Hudson Valley Digital Network is author a lot of really good description articles that are easy for people to find themselves back to. So when I do run into people like, you know, when I'm hiking or anything and people ask, I could actually just show them, like, a, a QR code on my phone or if I have, like, a business card. But for this case, this radio direction finding Fox stuff would have been, like, a little too complicated. But, you know, we'll probably do that next time. Or you can see in the in the picture, actually, let's see if I have a better one. Yeah, so the, the, the hidden transmitter box is, like, one of those... Uh, those ammo cases that you buy at everyone's favorite budget hardware store that I'm not going to mention since I'm not getting a, an endorsement for that. Um, but you can guess where I'm talking. And so we, we put the the transmitter in that box, and it's automatically uh, controlled. Uh, you can turn it on and off over a, uh, a remote radio link, and it transmits at different uh, intervals. And so, um, you know, we, we hid that in the forest uh, a couple times, and... Um, one one time, a few people got a little too close to it, even though it was hidden. But, you know, there's markings on there that sh- clearly shows, if you find this, call this phone number. This is what its intent is. And then I even took it a, a level further. You can't really see it in the photo. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I can't see it there. Like, right here on the top, I have written in, like, big gold Sharpie marker, caution. Flashing when active transmit, and so there's a big red LED light that blinks when it's transmitting. And so, if that's not going to scare somebody away, yeah. aside from the fact that it's a ammo case, which just seems really dubious, <laughs> yeah. with an antenna sticking out of it, at least it has some writing on. Like, yes, this is not a. I'll let you insert yeah. whatever you it's want to call it. But yes, yeah, to make it even worse. <laughs> having a blinking light on it just adds further effect. But it's a fun thing. So, you know, I, I hope this has kind of given some ideas as to, you know, what are some some fun activities that are contests in in a in a totally different idea how a lot of people think of, of amateur radio. And actually, in the last bit on on RDF, Fox hunting stuff, it's not as big of a deal in the US, which I find surprising, but in Europe, uh, they call it radio sport. And so they organize these literal foot races like you know with like shorts and headbands and you know sweatpants and the whole thing and you literally have to race around a course try to find the transmitter log a secret little detail on the hidden transmitter and you have to find like you know i think they do like 10 or 15 of these over like say like a a 10 mile course and they just you know they let people loose and they see who can find them as quick as possible and get back to the finish line
0: that's a really cool twist on that I yeah. realize they did that over there. And, yeah, I would think it would be more popular in the U.S. I mean, fox hunting is, like, it's something I grew up playing with on the CB, just trying to find other uh, you know, other CB guys and stuff, and something I've always uh, been fascinated with and enjoyed. I was really upset that I had to work and I couldn't make this event because uh, it would have been fun. But, um, Yeah. Yeah, it's cool stuff. I mean, if anyone wants to go and
1: take a look, you know, for the shameless uh, self-plug, you can go to the uh, the HVDN website, hvdn.org, and you can click on Notebook, and you can see, um, you know, the latest articles. And then, you know, when you click into them, um, it'll bring you back to the blog. So, like, here's uh, the article that we just published on the uh, six Hudson River Islands, which we'll get into some of its very occult and very strange history on, uh, you know, in a little bit. Um, but then you can go and find some other stuff. So if you just use the search, you can find different things. But you know, hopefully it's uh, it's something that might uh, inspire you to get interested in amateur radio if uh, you haven't heard C.J. Uh, preach it enough. You this know, it's kind of a different perspective of, you know, what else are some other folks doing on a on a kind of a, a different. A different type of focus, um, but again, you know, it, it's still like very focused on ecology, right? Like, hopefully, I can cajole CJ to, to crawl out of his uh his bunker and you know maybe be part of the special event because the ecology on uh, Bannerman's Island is like totally cool because you know it's not on the mainland, right? So, there's going to be different things, you know, plants grow slightly different, you know, you could get a sense from, and plus, also the Hudson River. When you get further down, so that's, let's say if you were to take a boat ride, you know, you're talking like an hour and a half on a slow boat. Once you get further past there, only up until that point does the water become fresh. You have to go pretty far up that 315 mile stretch for it to become fresh. And uh, a lot of people don't know that the Hudson River uh, current actually flows both ways. So... Um, it does get brackish and there's actually quite a lot of what you consider like ocean fish that live in the Hudson River and then there's ones that are freshwater and then there's like the weird go-between area that's you know all brackish and so you know you'll have sturgeon and some other stuff that now because the region has been paying a lot more attention uh, thanks to folks like Pete Seeger who recently passed away with his um, Hudson River sloop uh, project you know Everyone's trying to, you know, bring the the green back to the Hudson Valley, you know, having uh, large industrial manufacturing, uh, dumping stuff into the water. Maybe that was, you know, that was okay back then. But now we realize the effects that that has had on everything from like, you know, the, the bald eagle. Like, that's like a good story, you know.
0: Back- really well, yeah.
1: Yeah, like you, you know, the bald eagles, and you know, the early '80s, '70s, you know, they were on the verge of extinct extinction, because of you know hairspray and other you know PCBs and stuff getting dumped around, and so not only have they made a comeback, but like if if you want to go and find, uh, bald eagles, um, you know, you can go down to like Beacon in uh in Southern uh, Duchess and up in Woodstock. I mean, you'll see bald eagles all over the place, and you know the habitat for them is like the hudson river like that is like the perfect environment for the american bald eagle and so it's it's cool to be part of seeing that reclamation like yes you can actually swim in the hudson river now like you're not going to have to worry about you know you know coming across
0: uh something that you shouldn't come across in the water you know so it's 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 still getting better it's definitely much cleaner than it used to be and and yeah, the eagles are amazing here. Uh, like We have uh, several nested pairs in this area here. And, uh, I haven't in recent years been out to watch them, but man, uh, they're a lot of fun to watch. And we, I actually uh, got some video, which is on my channel, of the DEC uh, tagging some eaglets. So it's amazing what a comeback they've made just with the, the little bit of uh, changes we've made in our ecological practices here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, we're going to be coming up on the second break here in about a minute and a half. Uh, so uh, do you want to um just wrap up this section of it and then we'll uh, we'll pick it up the other side of the break. Yeah, I think're I think we're good for here.
1: We'll We'll pick up and talk about some of these islands and uh, probably somebody who you wouldn't think would have any relation to any of what we're talking about. But if you're interested in like magic and ancient folklore and, you know, occult, weird stuff, that's what we're going to be talking about next. So hopefully, you can so come why back. Why do you want to
0: buy us. one of these, uh, Mr. Radio Shack Manager? Why do you want to buy one? Because now everybody's a KO cooler, <laughs> you Welcome back to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in and talk stream live as well as the Pharmacy Seas Network YouTube channel, that's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's tonight's guest is Steve Bosser, and uh, we're talking about amateur radio and the Hudson Valley and so many other awesome pieces of this. Steve, uh, pick it up where you left off man, you got some awesome information, really appreciate you bringing that to the channel here.
1: Yeah, you got it, CJ. Anytime, so um, yeah, where we kind of left off is uh, start talking about some of the uh, the real interesting bits of uh, mysterious and culty type of weird history. Uh, so figure we only have six islands in the Hudson River, there's technically more, but many of those islands have since been filled in, uh, and connected back to the mainland, and so we start up here. Uh, at Shodak Island, which technically is not really an island because it is connected back to the mainland up over here. So I guess technically it's a peninsula. Manhattan, or New York City as most people know it as, technically is also a peninsula because they filled where it was connected. But it still constitutes as an island, uh, Shodak Island technically speaking was at 1.6 islands now they're all merged together with the exclusion of the tiny little shodak island which let's see it's really tiny i don't know if i'm going to be able to find it uh oh there we go so for it to count as an island you can still call it an island if there's another body associated with it that technically is an island so Uh, The the six names of the islands that technically make up Shodak Islands now are on the uh, HVDN website and the article that CJ will uh, link to here on the the bottom. Um, But, uh, you know, why I think this is an interesting spot is this is one of the few islands that counts as the Parks on the Air location. And so this is a nice day trip. You know, if you're looking for a cool spot to go, if you want to just go and enjoy nature, or if you want to go and do the ham radio thing, you don't need a boat. So it's kind of rare to get to something called an island, and you could just drive. So um, you, could, you could do that there. So that's at the north reaches. And then if we go down a little further south on the Hudson, we come to a even more strangely named thing called Hudson Islands Park. And honestly, these are like more like raised sand berms and, you know, many people wouldn't classify them as islands. But if uh, if you do technically look at it, there's three islands and I've called those out um, within the article as well. What is fairly unique, though, about Hudson Hudson Islands Park, some parts, of course, you can drive to because it is, you know, sort of kind of park uh, connected to the land. Um, but going back to that whole ham radio, you know, on the air type of thing, uh, it technically counts as a POTA, a parks on the air. Um, it actually has two designations. So with like those locator codes, like I said earlier about like Walmart parking lots on the air, um, there's two designators for Hudson Island park because one of the, um, technical islands classifies as its own. Own park, even though it's part of Hudson Islands Park. It sounds more complicated than it is. I think I kind of boiled it down in the article. But you then have a, two POTA locations. Then you have a um, U.S. Islands Awards Program number for a different island. So that puts you up to three different things. And then there's a fourth islands that you can technically work so if you're really feeling fancy on a given day if you had a boat you can go and play radio in the park then you can hop in your boat go play radio on the island activate what would be a pretty rare thing because it doesn't seem like anyone's really gone there and then if you're feeling extra extra fancy then you can go and activate the island so you can kind of get like a three-peat in one day so if if you're a Finding this whole on the air type of stuff interesting, and you want to make a lot of immediate friends. If you advertise the fact that you were going to go and activate, which is what they call, you know, when you go to do one of these, you know, on the air things, they call it activating uh, a park or a summit or whatever. Uh, If you advertise that across, you know, some of the different ham radio websites and blogs and magazines and stuff, or even like Facebook groups, uh, you'll have a lot of friends pretty quick because everyone wants these rarities and so the fact that you can get like a three-peat there uh is pretty cool and uh it's a it's a it's a really nice spot up there um uh, you know if anyone's into history uh, a lot of those like 17th and 18th uh or actually i should say the 1700s and 1800s uh type of watercolor pictures you know a lot of the uh the views and stuff before uh mankind uh, ruined it all with all these uh, farms and you know annoying uh, urban areas you know they were some of the most beautiful and they still are and you know you could find a lot of these pictures and then actually go and visit these places like oleana castle and a bunch of these other cool spots that were famous paintings and you could actually go and visit so this in itself is like a really cool day trip you know during during the warmer months or in springtime so, uh, so that's that. That's Hudson Islands Park. Yeah, this is that other, that other part, that other island. That's part of that that I mentioned. So it does look like a real island, where the other ones are kind of like tidal wetlands and marshes and stuff like that. So that's, so that's Hudson Islands. And then we got to go down quite a ways. Yeah. Then we hit probably the oh, the second good. star of the show. So this is a pretty tiny island. You know, it's actually like. 1,200 foot long by, you know, not that many feet wide. You know, you could, let's see how far I can zoom in. It's pretty rocky. You know, it's it's it's, it's a pretty strange place up on the north end. It's, you know, you can see where it's, you know, rocky. There's some stuff here. You know, you if you're, a, you know, a boater, you got to be real careful. Um, but on here, there's a, let's see if I can find it. can't really see it too well on here. But there is a, a stone boathouse that was built, I forget exactly when, um, but you know, somewhat recent. So, up until, you know, recent time, the island for the most part was kind of closed because they didn't want people hanging out or camping out on the island. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a, in a few minutes. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really cool spot um esopus island and then if we go down a little further there we go so this is pretty neat technically this doesn't count as an island because it's man-made um but this is called Bowles islands which technically counts as part of soPA. so you can't confuse the two so if you do get a boat you know don't think that this is a island and you're going to dock there the house on this island recently sold a few years ago for like 2.8 million dollars and it's like a pretty cool looking house too um so you definitely don't want to go there because it's private property but you know going back up here to esopus and i I guess it's actually just interesting timing so uh you know COVID, of course we're, we're we're done thinking about or at least we all wish to um and then you know they've been really talking quite a lot about uh, the Spanish flu uh, outbreak that happened in 1918. Well, in 1918, there was a, uh, a pretty peculiar guy who decided that he was going to camp out on this island for 40 days and 40 Freaky nights. A looking guy. Uh, his name is Alistair Crowley. He is a world-renowned traveler, occultist, poet, generally an awesome guy if you wanted to have a beer with and... Ask him, what has he done in his life? You probably would have to drink quite a number of beers to get through all of it. So uh, this guy, uh, amongst his many travels in the year 1918, uh, somehow uh, ended up in the New York metro area, right here in the Hudson Valley, and um, decided it would be interesting to translate an ancient Chinese text while spending 40 days and 40 nights on a sopas Island while at the same time drawing very cryptic and, what I've been told, satanic type of characters on the rock outcrops of Aesopis Island. For the research that I've done, I don't know exactly how he ended up there. I can imagine that much like going back to the early 1900s and 1800s and probably 1700s, the region, of course, was known for some really picturesque landscapes, and so maybe he saw some famous watercolor photo uh, or painting and decided to come check it out for himself. And you know, uh, Crowley definitely wouldn't be the only person to have tried to come to somewhere in the Hudson Valley to see what's uh, what's going on. So uh, that's Alistair Crowley and uh, his uh, his linkage to. Sopus Island. The interesting thing is, so after that in 1918, which uh, if we're paying attention uh, with COVID nonsense, uh, that also was the year of the Spanish flu epidemic, which is interesting. So maybe he decided uh, being a British national himself and uh, wanted to flee the old country. I think actually it wasn't his reason. I think he actually got kicked out of the UK if I'm not mistaken which is interesting. Um, maybe he was trying to just go through his own, uh, um, you know, quarantine or something. Who knows? But anyway, it's it's an interesting story, and it is certainly much like other things like Amityville Horror and, um, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, Poltergeist, those were some things that actually were... Not that far from where I grew up on Long Island. So that was kind of a cool thing to have been around, sort of. Um, you know, over the years, many people that know who Alistair Crowley is have tried to get onto the island. Up until fairly recent, it was pretty much considered off limits. But uh, as uh, the Hudson Valley has definitely come up more within uh, tourism and green ecology and related things of attracting people to the area to enjoy our much better maintained outdoor wilderness. Um, It seems like they're using that as almost more of like a tourist hook. So if you're into kayaking, uh, you can go and check it out uh they don't really want too many people there uh i think you do need to get a new york state parks department permit to visit the islands but that being said it's a it's a cool spot i would love to go there uh one day and uh, maybe if everything is successful with a uh, secret project that we're working on with another island maybe in the future we might have the opportunity to uh visit uh Crowley's ghost. He didn't pass away on the island, but some people say his spirit is strong on a and so maybe we'll have an opportunity to uh, play ham radio on that, and that should be a pretty spooky uh, QSL card that gets uh, sent out to people who establish uh, contact with us there, so kind of a neat story, and it's part of that islands on the air and parks on the air uh, type of stuff that I was uh, chatting about earlier, and so... That's all I have to say on Mr. Crowley. You can definitely look at the links that CJ is sharing, and I'm sure if uh, you're the audience that uh, I know exists within CJ's following, you probably know more about uh, Aleister Crowley than I. But uh, I thought that was a fun fact as I was researching uh, things for the article. So that's uh, what we have on Esopus. Make that full screen. There we go. So now we'll continue to uh, travel down the river, and uh, these uh, two pair of bridges, I'll just point out quickly to give an idea. This bridge span is called the Mid-Hudson Valley Bridge. It's for car traffic. It's a really nice bridge. They light it up with uh, RGB uh, LEDs every night. Um, It's really, really beautiful. And this other span right here is what's called Walkway Over the Hudson. This is a 1880s vintage a uh, bridge made for transporting uh, railroad uh, cars and uh, that of course is not needed these days uh, because they've rerouted all the rail lines and they converted it into a state-run park and so if uh, you're looking to come up to the Hudson Valley and look for a, a neat thing to do you can walk across here I've done it way too many times the views are, fant- the views are fantastic um, and so that's a, a neat uh, thing—not an island, but uh, it is uh, it is something worth taking a look at. So I'll continue coming down the 316 miles of the Hudson. Here we have the uh, Newburgh Beacon Bridge, and we gotta keep going down just a little bit. And now we near the destination that I think is the star of the conversation, and so. This island is named Polypel Island. Uh, most people locally, or if uh, anyone's into history, generally calls it Bannerman Island. And uh, if you can see, uh, zooming in here, uh, there's some interesting ruins. And I uh, was last fortunate to visit the island in 2016, so I have some, some cool shots so you could get a better idea. But basically, the uh, the long and short of it is in a uh, in the late 1800s following the Civil War a guy named Francis Bannerman v was a, uh, a wealthy business guy and he bought the island and the reason why he purchased it was he was at the time buying um, surplus Civil War munitions and equipment and then later he after the spanish-american war he um, decided that he needed a place to store the more explosive ordinance such as um rounds for rifles and cannons and stuff like that uh storing that type of material in uh downtown brooklyn off the shore of manhattan given that at the time uh brooklyn was not really uh part of new york city it was actually one of the largest cities on its own in the united states at the time and uh yeah, storing you know, lots of uh, gunpowder next to population centers, not a good idea. So anyway, he, uh, he decided that he was going to store all his munitions up on the island, and he decided to have a castle built. And that was not only going to store his munitions, it was also one of the earliest forms of advertising. So he took one side of the, uh, the castle, this one right here, Uh, which faces towards the eastern shore of the Hudson River in Dutchess County. And so if you were taking the train up or a boat or a ferry, uh, you'd see his name, Bannerman, (laughs) right on the side of it. So it made really fantastic uh, advertising. Um, So that's a little bit there. And uh, his family uh, had also lived on the island, so this is where the uh the bannerman castle where his business uh, storage was and then this over here i'll show some pictures of that in a second uh this was a uh a castle type of structure that he built where uh they would hang out during the uh the summer months when it was a little cooler and super gross and humid down in new york city as was the thing back then and so they would uh spend their summers doing stuff uh over here so it's a really cool spot what else could we show here yeah, so there's even some other like, like rock outcroppings. They made some like parapets and stuff there. So it is like super cool. And uh he he made it kind of to resemble like a Scottish uh castle from way back when. So uh definitely a uh a neat thing. So let's see. I have some pictures here. No, we're done we're done visiting with Aleister Crowley, I think. All right. Bye.
0: Just as we started to talk about him, the power went out here, and we had to come back and record uh, later on. So, interesting coincidence there. All right, so here we go. So, um, so these are pictures from when I was there
1: in 2016. Whoops, slideshow. I don't want slideshow. So this is the uh, the family residence. Um, as you could tell, it's uh, in a semi state of uh, disrepair. Um, so, uh, one of the goals with, uh, with, the, with the reach of HVDN through convergence and our ability to interact with other types of hobbyists, um, you know, we thought it would be a really nice idea to work with Bannerman Island Trust, which is the organization responsible for the maintenance and upkeep and safety of the island, and to ensure that it stays somewhat visitable for future generations. Um, and so, you know, uh, we thought it would be a, a cool thing to do an amateur radio special event, so almost like a contest, but we would be the ones that everyone would want to talk to because uh, Bannerman Island uh, is not like Shodak or ASOpus or any of the other ones. It's not part of the Parks on the Air. It's not part of Islands on the Air. It's not part of U.S. Island Award Program. It's not even part of Castles on the Air so if we could uh do an activation um and mail out uh special cards to anyone who uh, contacts us you know it's going to be kind of a rare thing i think it's going to be a a big deal and um somebody that's part of um, hvdn uh mentioned to me that uh, another club once upon a time tried to do it but they were just very not organized and so Hopefully we don't have the same fate, but, you know, so far HVDN has had a good track record of of doing things sort of like this. So I'm excited. So that's the family residence. And then we have, I think this building back here, this was like a water utility building or something. So, you know, it it definitely looks creepy. You know, uh, I, I can't imagine what it looked like, you know, 100 years ago. Um, But there's all sorts of neat spots. I I don't know what it would be like to uh, visit in the evening. You can generally only take uh, guided uh, tours uh, from two different launch points, either um, by ferry, boat, or you can uh, get a a pass. If you want to kayak there, you can. But they generally limit people to only a few hours on the island. So uh, it's definitely going to be something pretty rare. Um, Here's a shot, actually... If you go to visit the, uh, the HVDN website, um, right on, uh, hvdn.org, the, uh, the photo, um, uh, that greets visitors is, uh, a picture similar like this. Uh, the, the day that we took the boat there, the weather was absolutely fantastic. There was no touching, there was no, you know, touch up or anything. This was taken with a cell phone, you know, so it was just absolutely beautiful. And, uh, here we are looking at the island from the boat so you can you can make out the uh the castle structure here and so you know think about what the view like this would be as you're coming up the hudson river um what this looks like you know absolutely fantastically beautiful uh here's a shot here's a shot of the um of the castle and uh since 2016 some of this has actually fallen into further disrepair A few years ago, they had these uh, metal struts that they had attached to the side to shore up the the walls. Um, They've started to get most of these repairs, so the struts aren't as needed. But as you can tell, um, a lot of the original structure has deteriorated. In uh, 1920, there was actually a large explosion. I think it was like 200 pounds of ordnance went off. a couple of years after uh, Bannerman actually passed away and so it kind of took a major toll out of this building and then since then it's been kind of like you know weather and you know just bad conditions and it was kind of abandoned for a while and so you know it's uh it's had a tough time staying alive but uh all the tremendous volunteers have been doing a great job of trying to keep it open so so that's that. Uh, let's see what else. So here's another view going up to the main residence. There was a side entrance uh, that you can go in. I think the uh, the kitchen was located through here, if I'm not mistaken. So um, it, it's you know if, if you wanted to take photos there and turn them into black and white, if you're looking for some some cool shots, this is the place to be. Um, and then uh, lastly, we have another shot of uh, of the region. So again, totally beautiful, and you know um while the special event station that we're going to seek to uh do in the may or june timeframe of 2021 it's going to be limited to a few people uh that are going to be actual part actually part of that but you can um certainly be part of one of the many tour groups that launch out of the uh the Newburg and beacon area to come and visit the islands and uh check it out or just even just go any day and uh, and have a look you know really fantastic views and so uh that's that oh i have one more picture so here was yeah this is a good one so we got a bunch of kayakers so you could organize a tour you know if you're into kayaking you could launch out with a bunch of folks and uh and row to the island and uh you know do that and so yeah it just seems like you could just look forever straight down the hudson river so really beautiful. You can see some other stuff out there, another sailboat, you know, really, really nice, really nice place to visit.
0: That whole area is beautiful there where the mountains just meet the river. It's just, it's amazing, amazing views. If you've never been there, it's worth checking out for sure.
1: Definitely. So let's see. So we'll go back to uh, wrapping up the island tour. So, yeah, that that is something that I'm super excited about. Oh, well, cool not to get at everyone uh, seasick here so we'll, we'll now depart Bannerman Island and we'll head down to uh, we'll head down here uh, to what's called Constitution Island but before I talk about that so this is as historic as a spot that you can get within uh, American history so this over here is the famed West Point uh, Military Academy or USMA um, so back in the Revolutionary War uh, times, so actually I'll go down a little further, but not too far. So right over here is what's called the uh, Bear Mountain Bridge, and I've been up here quite a number of times. Actually, that photo that I had of the radio uh, with the, the flashlight lantern, I was uh, camped up here uh, for the evening uh, back in October before it got too frosty. And so when uh, during Revolutionary War time, when uh, British ships would come up the Hudson to try to reinforce uh, uh, their troops inland, um, they would need to make their way up the Hudson River. And when they got around here, you could see why this was such a critically important area because it's a natural choke point. So as slow-moving ships of the line would come up, they'd basically be under cannon fire for almost like 270 degrees. And so it made it really, really hard for them to come across, and then to make matters worse if running the, uh, the cannon gauntlet wasn't, <laughs> wasn't enough. Um, they actually had uh, some metal, some iron, wrought iron chains That's that they scary. extended across the Hudson River on uh, wooden pontoons, and they would uh, move the chain to let friendly ships in, um, or they also had another one where they could pull up out of the water to stop ships and basically rip through their keel it was considered at the time one of the most innovative and expensive undertakings, yet it was like the biggest waste of money ever spent at the same time. I forget what the U.S. Uh, current dollars would work out to, but um, basically all the time that was spent making those chains, I think it actually pro- provided more worth in history to use those as like local artifacts than the actual <laughs> value it got, um, but there's some- Yeah, I mean the link the the links for those chains were literally larger than like a car tire. Like much larger. You know, they're they're huge. Actually if, if anyone ever goes to visit um West Point, let's see if I can find it.
0: East side of the river was where they had Valley Forge there as well. I think they did a lot of the forging for uh, a lot of that military equipment there, didn't they?
1: Yeah. Um, so right here is a uh, one of the many monuments that you'd find at West Point, and uh, these uh, there's a chain that goes around this, and that's uh, all the you know it's from links from from that. So. Uh, I could talk on and on about a, a lot of the history. So there's that. And then what you're talking about, CJ, let's see. So we're in, so we got to actually go up to Beacon. So there was something called um,
0: a foundry up yeah. at, yeah. let see if I can find it. I actually did a uh, an estimate on putting a okay. security system in at that foundry. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, I went the wrong way. That's down in Cold Spring
1: is where I wanted to go. Yeah, so down in, down in Cold Spring, there's Foundry Cove, where they, uh, that's actually a really cool spot to go and uh, take a little day trip and, and walk around the grounds. So there was foundry where they, they uh, you know, melted and uh, smelted and did all that type of stuff uh, for the ironworks. And then there were some cannons and things that were pretty famous. They'd, they'd make them down here in the foundry Um, and then they bring them up to a place over here where you pass, you pass through an underpass and you could they used to do target practice with these rifled cannons and you can sometimes see some like, uh, what looks like rusty, uh, rusty stuff up in the hills. And so they used to shoot these at the, at the, uh, side of the mountain. So, so much cool stuff there, but anyway, getting back on point, Um, We come back up to Constitution Island, so Constitution Island was also considered one of the earliest defense points of uh, uh, the Revolutionary War, where they also had dragged across much smaller chains, and uh, the island itself is interesting because, as we could see on the right-hand side of the, uh, the, or I should say the eastern side of the Hudson River, is... um, a marsh land and the island, but technically speaking, Constitution Island, for what is considered the real island, that is the only part of West Point uh, Military Academy, which is actually a lot bigger than people think. It's roughly about that big. So it, it takes up a lot of space. The cadets are always doing uh, maneuvers, you know, back uh, all over here. Um, but uh, this is actually considered part. So if if you uh, were on a kayak or something, technically you're on mil- U.S. military property, not a place where you accidentally want to be. But they're they're pretty they're pretty cool about it, and you can see some of the uh, stuff that they have there for various yeah. uh, reasons. So um, so that's a cool place to go. This is a uh, This is the Metro North Railroad that goes up and down uh, the shore. And then this whole area of the marsh is really fun because they have a a fantastic Audubon Society um, uh, facility there. And then volunteers and donors built this amazing set of uh, walkways that go out into the marsh. And so if you have a camera and you want to get some really cool photos of birds and stuff, you know, you, you would never believe it, you know, going out there. And if you send people pictures, they're going to think, well, how did you get there by boat? Yeah. By foot. (laughs) So it's, it's neat. And, you know, much like Shodak, um, islands, you know, this is accessible by car. You know, you can come, you can park, you know, you walk through here and then you go, you walk around here and, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a really cool spot uh to go and check out so uh constitution island again another one of those with all the history it has it's not part of parks on the air because technically it's not really a park but there's enough where it should be considered as some type of a special activation for for parks on the air Hey, it's an island. It's not part of islands on the air, but for obvious reasons, you know, you can't have any, uh, wacky ham radio people running around the U uh, S military, uh, uh, set of land. And then, um, you know, it's all flat, so it, you can't qualify as Summits on the air. So that's often, last I looked, I don't think Walmart's going to be putting any, uh, locations yeah. out there. So you, you're not going to have Walmart parking lot on the air, or at least I should hope not. Cause, uh, Putnam, pretty, yeah, the US military, yeah. <laughs> Put- Putnam County is very under-commercialized for a reason. So it just goes against the core DNA of all the history. And so, so that's Constitution Island. That's a really cool spot. And I think um, if we were to do some other type of special event, if uh, Bannerman's goes as well as I hope, uh, Constitution Island would definitely be the next. And, you know, not just you know, go into play radio there and give people contacts. I'm working actively with other area amateur radio clubs, almost as this is a rally point as a theme to say, Hey, we have some cool stuff. You know, we can't all just go and do all the radio things. I want to make sure that I encourage representatives from the different amateur radio clubs to be part of that. But for example, like the crystal radio society, which is like a 80 odd year old amateur radio club based in Rockland County. Um, you know, there are some things that maybe we can, I could talk a little bit in more detail with them about of how do we think what was the technology back in, say, the early 1900s. And crystal radio is as, like, ancient as you can get. Um, so, you know, to try to find ways to engage with other amateur radio clubs. Even the uh, West Point Military Academy has its own uh, amateur radio club. So, you know, trying to work with a lot of these folks to kind of raise awareness and think of this almost like a theme, if, if you will, and how could we work together and that's really the goal for hvdn is you know we don't want to try to steal everyone's members we don't want to just be the best amateur radio club no i want to help make the region the best you know that's that's the overall goal of everything together yep and then as we come to the uh the end of the tour we'll uh go underneath the bear mountain bridge which uh is uh pretty cool it was actually the longest suspension bridge for quite a number of years and it was privately funded this was not built this was actually built by a a millionaire i'm not going to say which you can go and do the research yourself but um it was basically a privately funded bridge and he would charge tolls and he would keep all the money and to this day if uh, somebody's looking to drive and get down to uh, new york city for the cheapest way possible Best way to actually do it's to come over the Bear Mountain Bridge because the toll is like a and by law, by law of, like how it's set up, they can't increase that. Whereas like all the other bridges are much much more expensive, and so yeah, so yeah. cool little tip. And then uh, you know if anyone's looking to make a day of it, um, this is a railroad uh, track for the uh, commercial rail, and this is a regular roadway. But this right here is a pedestrian span, um, which I recently uh, walked over. So if you want a really cool view, standing here, looking out to the bridge, and to the hill across from the bridge called Anthony's Nose, you can do that. And then all this area over here um, is called uh, Fort Montgomery, which was a, uh, a Revolutionary War gun encampment. And so there's really cool stuff that you can walk around and check out some of the artifacts and um you can see some of the building foundations over here for the barracks. I think that's the barracks. There's a privy back here somewhere. Um, you know, Lots of really cool stuff. It's a good spot. you got to get there early in the day. The parking lot over here is uh, it gets pretty jam-packed, so you park over here. You walk down the side of the, the road, safe away from the traffic. It's, uh, it's a sidewalk. You're not going to get hit by a car. And then you come walk around the ancient ruins. You come down here. Go over the little walkway. There is a, a, a bathroom and stuff and a welcome center, so you don't have to worry about uh, anything there. And if you're feeling really adventurous, you can go over here to a uh, Bear Mountain uh, park, which is all this. This lake is a man-made called Hessian Lake, like the Hessian mercenaries that were hired to try to win the war. Didn't really work out, but somebody made a lot of money from that. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of cool, there's a lot of really neat stuff. I could, I can go on and on, but, you know, this is kind of like at the epicenter about HVDN. How can we encourage people, you know, if, if you go here to, to Bear Mountain, you know, here, like they have like this, this really neat uh, carousel, uh, old old timey uh, carousel thing. You know, if uh, you want to go, it's Bear Mountain State Park and you want to go and play, you know, activate Bear Mountain State Park on uh, POTA. And, you know, I can almost guarantee if you catch the right person, they're going to be like, wow, that is a cool spot, you know, just so rich in history. And so then we get to uh, finally the last stop on the tour uh, is Iona Island up through the 50s. This was considered a naval storage facility for munitions. So you kind of get the sense that they kind of looked at the Hudson Valley back in the day as let's go and store bombs there. And maybe that helps hint at why do we have such a uh, population up in Woodstock and in Cold Spring as being very forward thinking in um, not going to war culture. Uh, That's the history of Iona Island. And after 1974, it was added to the National Historic Register, and now it is a really fantastic uh, nature preserve and uh, all-around great place to go. You could get a sense for, you know, some of the uh, the roadways and things that they had to transport, uh, you know, munitions. It was easy to store big uh, big stuff like that up here, up, up the Hudson, because at the time the... Um, The U.S. Navy had their shipyards down in Brooklyn, so it was, you know, you don't store the bullets next to the ships. (laughs) So, you know, they located them pretty safe up here. And so Iona Island is also very interesting, where, again, you notice a theme. There's all these really interesting historic islands and great places to go and spend time with the family and do stuff, yet... It qualifies for parks on the air. It doesn't qualify for islands. You can take a look back at my article. I did all the research, you know, to see, like, what has what, um, you know, status and stuff. But, you know, those are just six examples, you know, of the islands. Those are the only technical islands if we zoom out along the Hudson, um, you know, that, that really count. And so, you know, it's it goes up quite a ways you know and so those are six things and i I feel like they don't get as much press as they as they probably should and so we'll see how bannerman's goes and and then we'll go from there
0: fantastic thanks for sharing that information It's uh some awesome stuff and uh, some history that i wasn't even aware of and yeah it's it's great how you touched on uh you know the history part of it the scenery part of it the radio part of it and uh I really like how you stitch and seam all those pieces together Uh, i think we have similar minds in that way i I don't see things independently i see things and how they connect to other things
1: well yeah no i i you know it's it's a hard thing but you know when people ask amateur radio is a technical no like there's all sorts of cool things that you can do and you know you could interweave it into all sorts of other hobbies and you know, um, or even if you are a radio person, you're trying to always look for something that kind of keeps it interesting. You know, you can, you can do a quick search and you can always find something new to play around with. Um, you know, for technical people or not, like, like one project that, um, we're doing through HVDN is something called Has Violet, and it is a, uh, communicator. Let's see. Here's a, Here's one of the prototypes. So this is a communicator that... Can you jump back out of screen sharing quick? Oh. Oh, yeah. You need to see it not on the screen share. There we go. All right. So now you can see it? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So, like, here's here's one of the prototypes. So basically the way that this works is it uses a technology called LoRa, which is, like, a really low noise um, type of wireless uh, protocol. When I say low noise, it means you can transmit really far with very little power and little antennas. And so that becomes kind of interesting. And so basically you can pair this over, uh, this version over Wi-Fi, and um, one of the applications that we have, you can uh, do text messaging. So if you have one of these and somebody else has another one, you can send messages back and forth over a pretty good distance. We've tested them for a couple kilometers um, easily on 5 milliwatts going across the Hudson River um, was a fun project pre-covid of course we haven't been uh trying to do anything like that uh since then and of course now with winter things are a little bit more challenging uh to do certain things outside but you know the nice thing where this i think ties into with a lot of the stuff that CJ does and there's details on our website but you know super high level this red board sticking off on here is where we can connect a number of different sensors and so Everything that you see here, this is not like you needed to design things and solder it and get, it's like Legos. Like you stick it together. We've done all the hard work. We've made the software for it. So this is all self-contained. There's a battery on here and it's a Raspberry Pi. And then the top layer is the the low rock communicator board. And then this is where we can hook sensors. And so if you want to say easily plug in a temperature sensor, a soil moisture sensor, um, there's one application that we have uh, that we call duck hunt which takes a laser range finder and when somebody gets close to it it changes the number of text messages that get sent out just to gamify it a little further like duck hunt like the nintendo game so this is this is you know that kind of idea and then you know other versions of it based off of the same hardware this is on a regular size raspberry pi with a GPS dongle attached to the side of it. And so this is more like, if you want to have something at home as like a gateway, because you have a lot more compute power and you don't have to worry about a a battery. You know, you can just have this plugged in all the time. And so this is kind of like a gateway version. And then we get into the latest version, um, which moves from Raspberry Pi. And I hope that I'm not going too technical, but then we got one like this. This is all self-contained. And this runs on a, an 18650 uh, lithium. And you can see the GPS antenna. That's where you connect the, uh, the main antenna. And then there would be a display on here, but I haven't soldered it onto this board f- for a reason, just to show you this. So this is all self-contained GPS and LoRa and everything. So this would pair right to a cell phone. You can do text messaging. You can go and you know do radio direction finding with it. There's all sorts of neat things. So very self-contained. And then lastly, I'll show you the super tiny guy, and we get down into the form factor like this. So, let's see, we'll go. Oh. So, this one is an SB32 based device. So, these are cheap, th- this is pretty inexpensive. These run about 15 20 dollars, and so this is very, very low power. If uh, you wanted to hook this to a solar panel and a, a super capacitor or a battery. This would all function self-contained. So if you wanted to connect this up in a greenhouse and send telemetry back and forth, or you know monitor uh, you know livestock or chicken coops, there's all sorts of neat things that you can do. And using amateur radio spectrum in the 900 or 433 megahertz band. And so again, going to that to that convergence, right? You know, there is a platform that we've built that helps encourage a lot of this experimentation. And so, for example, with like Bannerman Island or maybe some of the stuff doing POTA and SOTA and IOTA and all those other OTAs, you know, here's something that's kind of neat. And, um, you know, just to kind of showcase that amateur radio isn't just about old-timey Morse code. It's not just about voice communications. There's a lot of data communication that you can do, but also you can send valuable telemetry, right? Like, you know, all the stuff that CJ does, you know, he has a pretty – uh technology advanced greenhouse you know maybe we you know want to monitor soil temperature or soil um, you know humidity levels and moisture levels and stuff like that you know if you want to monitor that stuff in real time now you have a, a network and a platform that you can kind of figure out how to build it upon and so um that's another you know another way you know with 3 hvd of how do we show convergence bringing the tech into other things and um yeah, it's a, it's a fun adventure. We're still just you know starting out eventually you know, where the name HVDN or Hudson Valley Digital Network, most people think, well, are you guys trying to build a network? Well, a social network, not a technology network of how do we find the great people like CJ or maybe somebody like Yulia who is part of uh, something called HV Tech Fest. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that do similar things but we need a common theme to work together. And so that's really one of the goals with HVDN is to kind of create more of that social network. And if we see a need to do something that betters the community, could it be done through technology? Or say, for example, if we do like the special event at uh, Bannerman Island, you know, if uh, we make contact with somebody, uh, we'll have a donation page where if they want to have a confirmation and one of the qsl cards the little postcards that ham uh, people send back and forth to confirm contacts we'll have a special uh, series of cards made to commemorate the occasion and uh if somebody donates and they make contact we'll send you a card and all the proceeds of that would go to batterman island and so i think if we can inspire through that and think where could we scale that as you can see there's so many other great things, you know, just thinking of the islands and some of the parks and stuff that I've taken you on, you know, once I think other organizations and nonprofits learn about how we could add exposure, I think it's actually going to open the floodgates up. And so it's an exciting time. And, you know, I think this is a, a great, uh, a great show that you do CJ and, you know, just want to uh, thank you for, for having me. Um, I think I ran through a lot of stuff, but you know, if you have any questions, I'll shut up now (laughs) because I think it kept going rapid fire, but I'm very passionate about this and
0: it's too much to share. Yeah. And your passion shows through. And uh, I think that's, this is a great uh, demonstration for those who aren't familiar with amateur radio, just how flexible and diverse the hobby really is and how many opportunities it provides uh, for, you know, to learn technology, to develop your communications, to make friends, to, Connect different networks of people together for common goals. It really is just a, an excellent hobby and tool. So uh, I really appreciate your information and your insight and uh, your information sharing and your presentations are always uh, very professional. So that that's a nice added bonus to it. Well, thanks again for all the encourage
1: and encouragement, encouragement and, uh, and positive words, C.J. And if anyone wants to, you know, learn a little bit more, you can check out our blog on the hvdn website you know cj i guess i'll share the links uh, you know embedded in the uh the video but uh you know definitely check us out you know we encourage people locally to become members if they would like to but funny enough we actually have more supporting members that are not in the area just because they appreciate a lot of the content and what we're doing and you know that was again by design you know where maybe there's somebody who lives in i don't know illinois and they're looking for the family fun adventure you know hey yeah come and check out the Hudson Valley you know it used to be before Disney it used to be the spot where people would go on vacation and go and spend the hot months in the cool mountains and you know I'd love to see a lot more of that come back here because frankly Disney is super expensive <laughs> you know you can have a lot more fun up here for a lot less money
0: yeah a lot lot greater diversity here too of things to do I and mean, you can do like anything you want here basically you every Every sort of entertainment, uh, view, hike, park, anything you could dream of is all really available right here. And we have a really deep and uh, diverse history here as well. I and mean, You could spend weeks here just learning about the history of this this valley and, and how much it uh, is tied into the history of this country and the forming of this country. So there's a lot there. <laughs> Definitely, indeed. Well, I, could, I can go on and on, um,
1: but, you know, if you ever want to have me back on to talk history, I could do that. But, you know, I think this was a good, a good, uh, combination of a lot of things. This was like, uh, how special fried rice, you know, all rolled together in one. So if you want any of those individual ingredients, you know, I'm happy to, uh, spend more time talking about that if,
0: if you'd like in some, some future time. For sure. I would love to do that. And I'd love to have you back on for, uh, Maybe to talk about satellite work and DMR and some of those other topics. So maybe we could do some other episodes more tuned to those topics.
1: Absolutely, yeah. A lot of those other technologies, like uh, digital mobile radio or DMR and satellite, those are also going to be things that factor into the uh, the Batterman Special uh, Event Station. So uh, you know, feel free to you know check that out. You know, we're still in the early stages, at least from a, a planning, just because. Uh, it's winter and you know nobody's that crazy to go out on such a crazy island in uh, the middle of winter um, but um, you know we're going to have all sorts of different things and then also probably uh, if anyone's in the area um, at the end of January I think I mentioned this earlier winter field day is the last win- uh, weekend of January and we're going to do uh Oh, COVID compliant winter field day at uh, Ferncliff Forest up in Rhinebeck with the Overlook Mountain Amateur Radio Club. So, you know, definitely check that out. We're going to be featuring uh, this year a digital communication station uh, because in years past we've missed out on significant numbers of contacts by not having a digital communication station and instead we had to rely on mostly voice communications and um, through uh, Morse code and this year um, you know we want to get the bugs ironed out so this way come the real field day in June we basically have the goal of just drop the box on the table connect it to power connect it to antenna and go. And, you know, that's really what, what those field day type of events are designed for is establish communications pretty quick. Or even if we were to do something like a go and play uh, parks on the air at one of the many, many parks, you know, so just put that on the table and you're good to go um it's a, it's a nice uh, way to do things it's, it's it's a lot heavier it's not like what i do when i do summits so on the air where you only can take so much equipment with you in a backpack because you don't want to break your shoulders uh because you don't want heavy stuff but you know if you're sitting at a park you know that's not that big of a deal and so if anyone wants to come and check that out and see further variances within amateur radio you know we'll have, we'll have digital uh communications a voice we'll do morse code uh we'll do satellite demo we'll have all sorts of stuff there so it'll be a fun time and if you don't want to do ham radio stuff um you know there's plenty of nice scenery to go and walk around even in winter it's a it's a cool spot to be
0: yeah, it really is uh, i was there uh, last year and i know i got some some video for the youtube channel here and shared a bit of it but it's really hard to share the uh, the full uh, dynamics of the uh experience so i hope some other people will come and check it out and learn a, bit, a little bit a little bit more about it if they're in our area so well, hopefully and hopefully um, like we did it
1: in june we had a very covid compliant uh way of running things we did the radio direction finding event in early no in mid-november man time flies yeah that was like a, it was the week before thanksgiving we did that that was a good time and so, you know, I think we have a good track record of doing events safely. And, you know, we usually wait a few weeks and make sure that nobody got COVID. And here, here we are having, you know, at least three kind of major events since the, uh, the outbreak and we've not had any issues. And so it kind of just shows that we know what we're doing and how to run events and keep everybody safe. So I'm sure we'll have the same
0: with uh, Winterfield Day come the end of January. Sure, we will. It's a well-managed club and operation organization, so I know you guys all put a lot of effort into, uh, you know, setting those up and making them happen and, uh, and making them enjoyable for everyone, so. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's see. I guess we'll uh, share the link for your website. Do you want to just plug it here uh, on our way out? Sure, so uh,
1: hvdn.org is the website. Four letters. Pretty simple. Uh, so feel free to check it out. You know, we have uh, the blog, it's called The Notebook up at the top. You can see what some of the stuff that we have going on both with ourselves and other organizations that we work with through the activity page. We have uh, all sorts of other great uh, landing pages and information. If you're into computer programming stuff, you can learn more about the Has Violet project. If you're interested in trying to find where you can find other people to talk to we have stuff there to learn about repeaters the list goes on and on even there's a separate channel if you click on the little hamburger on the upper right side of the page and you go to the drop down you'll see a area called operational uh resiliency and that has a, a great uh news feed uh frankly some of the articles that get plugged in there i think are like super fascinating so you can go and check that out kind of has this moniker of ham radio saves lives. I don't like to call it that, but, um, you know, how do you use communications in an emergency? And a lot of the articles that it it pulls through its RSS feed uh, make for fascinating reading. And so we have that, and there's a couple other things that pull streams from elsewhere, but, you know, I think it's a a great resource if you're looking for some rainy day reading, you know, definitely feel free to check us out. And uh, I guess maybe the last thing I can plug We're going to be actively promoting our new Slack channel. So, to have more of an online community where people, if they want to have, you know, real time or when people decide to tune into it, you know, chat type of stuff, uh, we have that up and running now. And when we do our virtualized presentations, uh, we're using something called Jitsi, which is an open source version of. Uh, similar to like Skype or um, Zoom or Go to Meeting or things like that. So, we're integrating that, that's been integrated in. And so, you can have real time collaboration, you know, check out a, a meeting, a video, you can do chat, you can ask questions, you know. So, we're really trying to make things seamless and let's see where we can grow things. So, I think that's kind of it for me uh, on the HVDN
0: front. Again, thanks uh, so much for having me, CJ. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on. I look forward to doing uh, future episodes with you and appreciate all the information you share. I hope everyone will go check uh, Steve's website out and uh, all the other information he shares. Uh, I know there's some excellent reading information there, so I hope you'll all go check that out. With that, uh, we're going to come to a close here. Thanks for listening to or watching Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, TuneIn and TalkStream Live, as well as the Pharmacy Seeds Network. And the full episode of this will be available on the YouTube channel. Uh, We've run over time a little bit. So if you're listening on TFR, you'll be missing a little bit of it. And I encourage you to go check out the YouTube version with the visual presentations. It's a much more robust experience for you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Comrades and Farms. We'll see you again next week. Have a great night. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>